Welcome to the Brisbane Property Podcast with your hosts, Melinda and Scott Jennison from Streamline Property Buyers, your local Brisbane property specialists. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of the Brisbane Property Podcast. Um, today we've got a, a guest with us, Jessica Palaszczuk. I believe I pronounced that right. I hope so, Jessica. Um, welcome and Melinda's with us as well. Hi, Jessica. Welcome to the Brisbane Property Podcast. Thanks, Melinda and Scott. Great to be here. And yep, you got my name right. That's perfect. Great. (laughs) (laughs) So Jessica is a mortgage broker and we've got some fabulous um, information to share with listeners today all about the world of finance because obviously when you are a property investor or a home buyer, um, in most cases, uh, you will be relying on banks to fund the majority of the purchase price unless you are a cashed up buyer. Um, you will most likely be talking to someone like Jessica. So Jessica, um, help just to help our listeners understand um, what what is the purpose of financing an asset? You know, what are the benefits of obtaining finance? Well, basically it gives you leverage, doesn't it? It allows you to not use your own cash and get um, exposure to growth without having to put in a heap of money. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that that's something that people are often scared about borrowing money. Um, However, what the ability to borrow money does is it allows you to leverage and buy an asset that you um, wouldn't otherwise be able to afford with cash. So look, what I'd like to unpack today, Jessica, is, um, is just to get a better understanding of how you know, property investors can align their investment strategy with the mortgage strategy um, to grow wealth. Uh, now, can you just help people understand what what does it mean by having a mortgage strategy in place? The mortgage strategy is the key to everything because without finance, you most people, like you were saying before, can't access property. Not many people have enough cash to buy a property. So your, your mortgage strategy, your finance strategy is literally everything. You've got to base your investment strategy on your mortgage strategy because there's no point having dreams of buying 10 properties at $500,000 each if your finance is limited to maybe buying two at $300,000 each. So you want to know what your, your finance strategy is going to allow you to do before you even start to formulate your investment strategy. So Jessica, just just to keep it simple, like obviously Years gone by, we we just went into a bank manager and we we all knew the bank manager first name basis and we would talk to them and that organised all these loans for us. Just to keep it simple for people listening, with the mortgage broker side of things, you obviously work with, as you said, a strategy, not just borrowing a, borrowing some money to go and buy a property. At, at what sort of stage should people be talking to you about that um, opportunities? Before they even start looking at property, generally speaking, and even for first home buyers, if they know at that point that eventually they're going to want to invest in property, getting that first purchase right is absolutely key because um, if they want to be investors, the lender they choose will need to have the appropriate policy um, to allow them to do what they want to do in the future. Whereas most first home buyers, they're not thinking of investing. So they'll go for just a simple low rate product, thinking it's going to save them a heap of money. But when they get to the point of potentially getting to the point of wanting to invest, um, they find that their low rate lenders actually painted them into a corner and they can't do things like access the equity they want or um, they can be limited in other ways just due to policy. So as soon as you have any inkling that you might want to invest in the future, absolutely see a mortgage broker, but not just any mortgage broker. It has to be one that's actually really savvy when it comes to investment lending because 
the way that we think about lending you know, two or three or four steps down the track is very different than someone who deals mostly with first home buyers who aren't investors. They'll really think more about the the one purchase to hand without thinking about the future. I think that's, um, you know, a really valid point that you've touched on there, Jessica. And a lot of people do Um, you know, they're not thinking about the next move when they're buying their first home, for example. But um, I I know that there would be a very specific way to set up um, the mortgage when you want to convert your home into an investment property at some stage in the future. And it's not something that's often on people's radar at the point when they are acquiring the property, but it's something that they should potentially think about. What sort of strategy works in that situation when people are buying the home, but they want to later upgrade, but hold that asset and convert that into an investment? Yeah, it's absolutely key. What we see a lot of times is people paying off their home without thinking about the fact that that home is going to be an investment property in the future. So ideally, you don't want to be paying off that property if it's going to be turning into an investment property. You'd be looking to have an offset account and putting any savings that you would otherwise pay off the loan, putting that into the offset account. That just gives you so much more flexibility moving forward. Um, From a tax perspective, it maintains a lot of deductible debt for the future. Whereas if you're paying down that house to start with um, and looking at potentially redrawing funds to use as a deposit for the next property, it's nowhere near as tax effective to do it that way. And you'll actually be causing yourself to lose money year on year moving forward. So getting it right from the start obviously has, you know, massive compounding implications. Yeah, I absolutely um, agree with everything that you've said again there. One thing that I always say when we're speaking to clients is that your investment strategy must align with your mortgage strategy and your tax strategy. And you've really um, hit the nail on the head there in in making that um, statement that you want to maximise the deductible debt on any investment property or any property that will become an investment property in the future. So that's really critical um, to understand that up front. And when we're talking to clients, obviously one thing that we're always talking about is what is the exit plan for this property purchase? Whether that's a home or an investment, it's really important to understand is this a forever home? Um, if you were to upgrade your home, would you sell this property to fund the next purchase or would you convert it into an investment? Because that then leads into that next conversation, which is, you know, getting that professional advice from someone like yourself, Jess, where people can, you know, ensure that they're set up um, in the right financial structure to to push ahead. Absolutely, absolutely. And when, what we find with a lot of investors that come to us, they're not thinking exit strategy at all. They're just thinking about the acquisition of the asset and then once they've got it, it's like a box has been ticked and they can forget about it. But when we um, work with our strategy clients, not just our mortgage clients, but the ones that we sit down and do strategy with, we are always talking about how is this property going to get you to your goals? And that absolutely has to involve the exit strategy. So, okay, so Jess, I'm, my background is construction. Um, I'm, I'm a builder or have been a builder. I'm not building anymore. Um, when people, and we did the same thing, we bought a house together uh, many years ago now. Um, it, at that time, we had the same mindset, I guess, that this was our house and we loved it and we wanted to do some renovations and things like that. Is that something that people should be, when you're saying about not paying your house off, should they be using some of that savings to throw into the house to do the renovations to improve it in value? Is that going to help them, even if it might be an investment down the track? Ideally, if you can borrow for it, so much the better. 
Um, but if you can't, you, you don't have any choice. If you want to do the renovations, you're going to have to pay for them in cash if you can't get the lending. And generally speaking, the only way that you can get lending for renovations, um, if you're doing them yourself or managing the project yourself, is to um, get equity from another property because they won't usually give you um, a cash, like a construction loan, for example, unless you've got a fixed price building contract and a licensed builder doing the work. Yeah, I think that um, it's important for investors, especially to understand that using your cash reserves um, to put that into a renovation during the accumulation phase of building a property portfolio may not be the best use of those funds. Um, You really have to understand what the um, benefit of spending cash is when you're spending that on an investment. So look, I don't think that that's uh, something that we've got time to cover here, but potentially that's a topic for a future uh, podcast of ours. But Jess, I do want to sort of make this a little bit more relevant to what investors are doing here in Brisbane. Now, you know, Brisbane is a market that typically attracts uh, investors who are chasing a higher rental yield. Now, um, obviously, what comes with a higher rental yield, especially for investors who are highly leveraged, is, you know, the in times of a pandemic, for example, if there's any risk to um, increasing vacancy, um, that can really impact on an investor's overall, you know, wealth creation. Obviously, rental yields, um, if they've increased slightly um, over the same period of time that capital growth has sort of increased slightly, from a lending perspective, what is the risk associated with investors that are highly leveraged, um, that are really relying on that rental yield? And generally, um, you know, is it rental yields that that banks are looking at, or is it the individual's um, personal earnings through um, other income sources that become more relevant in dispersing funds? When it comes to borrowing capacity, rental income is always important, but it's nowhere near as important as personal income. So the way that banks that look at um, income, they will shade rental income by twenty to thirty percent, plus any um, investment property expenses also get added in to living expenses or, you know, just family running cost expenses. So any increase in personal income, like your pay-as-you-go job, um, self-employed income, that kind of thing, that's going to have a much higher impact on your borrowing capacity than increasing rents or having positive cash flow because there's so much cost associated with um, getting that income from a positive cash flow property in terms of, you know, rates, property management fees, all those sorts of things, the banks do take that into consideration and they shade the income. So for a property to pretty much break even in a bank's calculator, as in have no impact, um, it needs to be returning probably 10 to 12%, um, which is huge. And not many people get that kind of cash flow from their investment properties. So generally speaking, buying a property um, for cash flow is not going to increase your borrowing capacity. It'll still reduce your borrowing capacity, but not as much as the negatively geared property would. So at 10 to 12%, what happens if interest rates go up, Jess? <laughs> in, in regard to borrowing capacity, it can actually be better. It can actually be better for borrowing capacity having higher interest rates, which sounds really counterintuitive, but um, the negative gearing calculation in the banks that allow negative gearing um, for investment lending, it can actually increase... Um, it can increase your borrowing capacity sometimes, which sounds really counterintuitive and it depends on the assessment rates at the time, but it can actually be positive for borrowing capacity to have slightly higher interest rates. 
Yeah, that's interesting because I know, um, you know, in the past, um, I mean, Scott often talks about when he first bought his... uh, this is in the past, okay. First bought his block of land um, as a 16, 17-year-old apprentice carpenter. And I think at that time, interest rates were at 17%. I mean, 19. I beg your pardon, yeah. 19%. And, you know, there's no such thing as a, a property at any level that would achieve a cash flow when interest rates are that high. Now, right now, interest rates are as low as they have ever been. And we are at a point in history where you know, it's quite often um, cheaper to buy a property in many areas, especially in greater Brisbane than it is to rent, which, um, you know, is is something just to keep in mind as an investor. If you're buying in an area where it's costing the tenants more to rent that property than it would to buy that property, it gives a bit of a snapshot into, you know, what that demographic is. I think that, um, you know, from your understanding, Jess, the RBA has sort of predicted that rates are going to be low for a, a long period of time. Is that what you sort of understand as well? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's the indication that we're getting for sure. And I think then on that basis, you know, at this stage for the next for, for the next few years, um, there's no risk to people that are buying for a higher yield. However, I guess, you know, if you're not, if you're keeping all of those loans on interest only and not attempting to pay those down, which might align with a good, you know, finance strategy and investment strategy, but what happens then if rates do increase and, you know, the investors are relying on the cash flow from those properties, I think that's when we could see you know, some investors fall into some sort of hardship. Would you agree? Yeah, definitely. It's with property investing, it's always about risk management. It's always about risk management. And debt reduction is really important, especially in these times where borrowing capacity is really limited. Reducing debt is a key part of being able to continue to borrow, but it just depends on the debt that you're reducing. So if you do have properties that are interest only, you need to be using that saved cash flow to strategically pay down debt. And ideally, you'd be paying down non-deductible debt, like your home loan, for example. So it, yeah, you need to be able to manage your risk and debt reduction is a huge part of that, but also having available funds um, is also a huge part of that. Plus, um, if you are on interest only, being really aware of when those interest only periods are expiring and your borrowing capacity, so you know whether you can actually refinance those interest only loans to either a new interest only term or um, a P&I term over a longer term, so maybe um, going back out to 30 years P&I and the cash flow associated with all those sorts of things, that's what you need to be keeping in mind. So having um, a cash buffer to tide you over any tough bits where you might have vacancies or anything like that, um, knowing where your borrowing capacity sits and your ability to refinance when interest-only periods finish because the last thing you want is to have a portfolio of properties that all have their interest-only periods expiring at once and not being able to refinance them because the cash flow hit in that um, in that scenario is going to be huge. And having, you know, four loans or five loans or however many all reverting to principal and interest at the same time, there's not many people that can absorb that kind of cash flow hit. So being prepared for that is really important. I think that's great advice. And, you know, I think you've hit on a couple of things there, making sure you've got cash buffers in place, not um, overextending yourself and leveraging to a point at which you can't afford to pay down um, all of those loans on principal and interest and planning ahead because, yeah, all interest-only loans will 
um, you know, roll over into principal and interest loans after a given period. So you need to understand when that's going to happen for you and plan ahead if you're wanting to roll them back into interest only. It's not something that happens overnight, I would assume. It's something that needs to be planned well in advance. Would you agree, Jess? Yeah, definitely. And the thing is, we've seen like, over the last five years, we've seen people build really significant portfolios because they could back then. Borrowing capacity was a lot looser and people on average incomes could buy lots of properties. And the um, the advice at the time was to have them on interest only, save into your offset account. Um, and at that time, we could extend interest only periods with just a form. It didn't take a full application. These days, it takes a full application to extend interest only, not just a form. And the reality of the situation back then was even though the strategy was to save the cash flow into your offset account, most people didn't do it. So they've got these interest-only loans that are starting to expire. They don't have that saved cash and they can't refinance their loans. So they're um, forced to sell. There's nothing else for them to do because they can't they don't have the borrowing capacity to refinance. So they need to deleverage at that point. And as investors, the last thing we want is to be forced into a position where we need to deleverage. So having those risk management um, things in place is just super important. I, I know, Jess, I know Melinda's got a, a question a little bit on equity as well. Um, way we, the way we've done it, obviously, in the past, and I, I presume it is very different now as well. Um, we know it's quite different, but we used to do renovations and work um, on our properties, trying to improve them, put a bit of heart and soul in there. And then we would try and borrow off the, what we equity we actually created in that by manufacturing the equity. Are we looking at people borrowing money these days and looking to do that sort of strategy? Can they literally do that on equity or is it all about serviceability? It's both. You can't get any equity if you don't have the serviceability. If the bank can't see that you can repay that loan, they're not going to give you the money in the first place. So you could have $2 million in equity, but no borrowing capacity, and you have to sell to realise it. I think that um, some of the younger viewers might not like to hear that it never used to be like that. <laughs> and and pulling um, equity out of assets was actually a lot easier without an assessment of serviceability. So haven't times changed? And Jess, I'm assuming that's off the back of the um, Royal Commission just a couple of years ago. Not really. You've always had to show serviceability to release equity, at least as long as I've been broking, which is since 2014. Um yeah, you've always had to be able to show that you can service the loan. You, you've never been able to just get a loan based on the equity in the property that I'm aware of anyway. Um, <laughs> maybe maybe, we've, maybe, maybe we've we've forgotten we're so, <laughs> so prehistoric, which even worries me, um, you know, more. <laughs> um, but just on that topic, you know, we actually get a lot of inquiry for property investors that wanting that are wanting to buy assets in Brisbane you know, in a lower price point in Greater Brisbane, potentially around three to three hundred and fifty, possibly even up to four hundred thousand dollars. And their goal is to, you know, do some minor renovations and pull equity out within three to six months. Can you just help our listeners understand what are the um, practicalities around doing that? Um, does that actually work? And is that a strategy in the current lending environment that um, people can confidently sort of go after? It, it can work, but not in the way that people think. So generally speaking, if you've bought a property and you want to get equity out of it within that period of time and you want that renovation to get taken into consideration, you're going to be um, ordering a full valuation where a valuer will actually come and walk through the house, look at what you've done and um, do a full valuation based on 
not only the improvements that you've done, but also the sales in the local area using comparable sales. Now, valuers do this for a living, right? So if you've done a really cheap renovation, basic cosmetic renovation, you know, painted the cabinets, maybe painted a bench top, resurfaced a bath, something like that, um, they're going to be looking at the quality of that work. So unless you're actually really good at it, it can actually be in detriment. But they also can recognise, they know more or less how much you've spent on that renovation. And they usually will just, they can see the purchase price that you paid for the property and they'll usually add their estimate of your renovation cost to that. So unless the market itself has really moved significantly in that time and there's just been a general uplift in the market, you're only really going to get back on that renovation the cost that you would have put into it. Um, the exception to that would be if you have been able to um, add a bathroom, add a bedroom, something along those lines to actually change the structure of the property because then they'll be comparing it to different properties and not taking your purchase price into consideration quite so much because they'll be comparing it to four by twos instead of three by ones, for example. Yeah, that's really good um, a tip actually. And then that probably leads me into the the next important part of that in that you therefore need to be buying in the locations where you do have strong price disparity, or that is, you know, the the value of three bedroom, one bathroom homes um, is very different to the value of four bedroom, two bathroom homes within the same suburb so that you do have that uplift in value as a result of a structural renovation um, at the completion of those works. Because otherwise you might find if you're buying in a location where you don't have that price disparity, uh, you may have overcapitalized. And then that's going to become another problem in itself, because not only will you not get the funding, but then you've got an asset that um, is over, you know, valued for the area that it sits in. Would you agree, Jess? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's, um, it's really important that you actually do the research around the value that your renovation is going to give. Um, another reason for that is that, like I was saying before, if you just do a cosmetic renovation, often you won't get the uplift in value that you hope for. Um, and often we find with valuations, because a full valuation at the moment, the valuer is going to put in all their thoughts around COVID, all their thoughts around the risk in the current market. And often a full valuation is going to give you a worse result than um, getting a desktop valuation, which is just an automated valuation based on data from CoreLogic. So what we tend to recommend to our clients who want to employ um, a strategy where they want to get equity reasonably quickly, we would suggest buying at 80% and using a desktop valuation um, instead of going down the renovation route. Because often, because of the, the quirks with desktop valuations, because there's no physical value, no physical value going out there and having a look at the property, often there can be discrepancies between what's, you know, realistic and, and how that desktop valuation comes in. So often we can get a really good desktop valuation without even doing a renovation, um, saving yourself that money, but working just basically going off the, the quirks in the system, if you like, to get a good valuation and be able to access equity without having to pay extra mortgage insurance, without having to do a, a renovation. And we can actually get really good results that way. 
So that's a really good tip. In fact, I think that's a gold nugget that you've just shared with people because if you know how to access those automatic valuations either through your mortgage broker or through some of the um, paid software subscriptions that um, we would have access to as buyers agents, you can potentially um, secure properties at an amount that you know is under uh, one of the automatic valuation um, amounts that's recorded for that property and then look within a shorter period of time of going back to the bank and requesting that you pull the equity out on the basis of the automatic valuation. Is that what you're saying, Jess, could potentially be done? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. So if you bought a property with a certain lender, you could then order like three months down the track, order a desktop valuation with that lender. And because there's no physical value going out there, you don't get, you don't have the COVID remarks. You don't have the risk to the market coming through, generally speaking. And um, they do tend to come up more generously than a physical valuation would. So in that scenario, we would order a valuation, first of all, with the lender that you're with. But if that isn't conducive, we can actually order valuations with other lenders as well. But obviously then to access the value from that valuation, there's a refinance involved as well. Yeah, understood. And if the the purchase um, was made you know, for example, in in February, and um, the full valuation was completed with with an on site visit to make the purchase. Um, is it still possible that you can pull that equity out after three months using an automatic valuation? They won't then reference the sale price um, three months earlier. No, as long as it's in line with all their policies around the valuations, um, they won't question it. So another good reason to be working really closely with the mortgage broker that you choose because um, this is all around strategy and maximising the opportunity to continue to build, you know, your portfolio as a property investor. So lots of uh, gold in in what you've just shared there, Jess. Thank you. Not a problem. So it sounds a little bit like, uh, Jess, you want to buy in the right location for the right price and uh, let the property do the uplifting and the hard work as opposed to the, the renovation of the hard work, unless you're probably a tradie and you can do it yourself. Yeah, definitely. Or, I mean, if you've got different reasons for doing a renovation, so for example, you know that it's going to make your property more appealing to tenants or you're going to get a higher cash flow, you know, in rental yield from doing that renovation, by all means, go ahead and do the renovation, but just don't make it all about the equity release. Yeah, that makes perfect sense because I know that there's some, you know, properties that we would buy for clients that they're just a bit tired and a quick lick of paint, new carpets and some window furnishings can make a very big difference to the appeal for tenants, which then results in an uplift in the rental return, which ultimately it's all about dollar in for for at least a dollar out when you're looking at spending renovation money because it does, you know, provide a better type of property, I guess you could say, and it increases your potential tenant pool as well. So a more desirable property always leads to a better rental return. Absolutely. And, you know, before we were talking about renovations within that six-month period, if you wait and do your renovation or get the revaluation done after that six-month period, the purchase price of your own property drops out of the valuer's radar unless you're in a um, an area that doesn't have a great deal of sales. So if you're in a metro area where sales are really going quite well, there's a good volume of sales, the valuer won't look at your purchase price quite so much. They'll look more at the, because their timeline to do comparable sales is within six months. So they'll be looking at all the sales of similar properties within the last six months. And if your purchase was less than, sorry, more than six months ago, they won't be looking at that anymore. 
Yeah, that's an interesting point as well, because I think, you know, there's potentially some risk associated with that in the current environment where listing volumes and therefore sales volumes have significantly reduced because of COVID. I know when we're appraising a property ourselves, we we typically don't go back any further than six months to look at comparative sales to come to the current, you know, appraised value of a property. However, in some instances, there's just not enough properties that are comparable within a six-month period. So I guess that's the only um, time that you could get unstuck when the sales volumes just have not been there and therefore, you know, a valuer might go back a little bit further and then pick up your own property in that um, appraisal report. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, Jess, can you just give us a bit of an update on um, the current market? We've, we just recently had a client, believe it or not, um, that actually did settle, went unconditional and finally settled. Um, I think we had six extensions to finance oh, wow. on yeah. that. What What's actually happening at the moment with all these different lenders? Oh, it's some lenders, we've got applications that we lodged in May that still aren't approved. Um, honestly, with some lenders, it's an absolute debacle at the moment. COVID's really um, thrown a spanner in the works for a lot of them. I think a lot of them offshore, a lot of their processes. Um, so often their people will be stuck at home, <laughs> working from home. So, Is that a pre-approval, Jess, or approval? <laughs> No, all their, all their processes. No, it's it's not. It's an actual. It's a refinance, the one that's still in the process. But um, yeah, if it was if it was a purchase, it'd be well and truly over by now. But there's but across the board, lenders are taking a really long time. They're busy, um, but assessors are going through everything with a fine tooth comb as well. So before in normal life, before COVID, we would say you know, 14 days for finance approval. Now we're asking for 28 because assessors are taking longer to pick up files. They're going through it with such a fine tooth comb that they're invariably coming back with requests for further information, requests for more documents. And by the time we get that information and any additional documents back to them, it's back to the back of the queue, maybe another five to seven days for them to pick it up and look at it again. So it's, it's just a really time-consuming process at the moment. So um, I was actually in our Facebook group today telling everyone, if you want to buy property sort of within the next three months, if you want a, pre- a pre-approval, get it done now because if you wait until the right property comes up, we're not going to be able to get a pre-approval in place for you in time. So you need to be well prepared, um, prepared for long time frames, be prepared for endless requests for more information and stupid requests like honestly they just seem to (laughs) make no sense sometimes and literally they don't but at the end of the day if you want the money you got to jump through their hoops so we just try and keep a smile on our face and just do what they ask and keep communicating so um look jess what um obviously your your business is called seed financial how do um how do listeners if they want to get in contact if they have any inquiries how do they get in contact with you the first thing that we get people to do is come and join our Facebook group, which is called Empire Builders on Facebook. I love people to come through that first because I go live in there every week, almost every week, um, answering questions, training on strategy, doing all those sorts of things. I love to work with people who already know how I work, who know what I'm about because there's just, um, they come to me then. I don't, it, it works better. Rather than having to sort of prove myself to brand new clients who've got no idea what we're about, we prefer it for them to come through Empire Builders because they know who we are by that point. So join Empire Builders if you want to come and work with me. Check me out, see what I'm about, watch my videos, and then get in contact from there. 
But otherwise, um, they can email me, jessica at seedfinancial.com.au. Um, it's seed, S-E-E-D for dog, um, financial. So they can just email me and get in touch that way as well. Yeah, we'll make sure that we include all of the details for um, getting in contact with you in the show notes so that people can um, access that if they would like to reach out. Fantastic. Um, look, that's, look. I've, I think we've sort of chatted for a fair while. That's been some really good information there and some good tips. Um, thanks, Jessica, obviously, for having a chat with us. Um, I'll let Melinda thanks, wrap up and thank you as well. Um, and look, from me, uh, take care and we'll talk soon. Thanks and bye for now. Thank you so much for joining us today, Jessica. It's been absolutely fabulous um, having you share all of your wisdom with us. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. You're very welcome. And um, I hope that everybody has enjoyed this episode where we've taken a really big deep dive into the current lending environment and talked about mortgage strategy and, you know, some different ways that you can potentially um, pull some equity out and, you know, build, continue to build a property portfolio. So as always, we would love for you to share the details of this podcast with your friends and family. Don't forget to leave us a review on your favourite podcast player. And until next week, enjoy your evening and we will speak to you again soon. Bye for now. Thanks for tuning in today. Please remember everything we have spoken about on this podcast is general in nature and we always recommend that you obtain independent advice in relation to your specific circumstances. If you liked today's episode, don't forget to subscribe or leave us a review on iTunes and, of course, tell your friends about us. If you would like to get in contact, please visit www.brisbanepropertypodcast.com.au or email us at info at brisbanepropertypodcast.com.au. Feel free to send in any questions and we will try to answer them in future episodes.